0: sisters come together now come together now it's time to help each other out help each other out welcome to the sword podcast this is a platform for sisters to gather and have some empowering conversations and in the process of these conversations we help each other overcome some limiting beliefs i want you to join the conversation i appreciate your likes subscribes and comments This podcast is sponsored by Stephanie Brown Coaching. If you have any limiting beliefs that are holding you back, feel free to contact the coach at Societap.com forward slash Steph Brown MD. Welcome to SOAR. Thank you. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Chris, it is so good to have you on Not only are you an expert at what we're getting ready to talk about, but you're also my Duke classmate. Yes. And I might be a little bit biased, but I do think that we come from like the best class that Duke ever produced. So class of 92. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) So I'm so excited about our topic today. Our topic is the rage of innocence, how America criminalizes black youth. And this is also the title of your brand new book. Yes. So congratulations on that. Yes, thank you so much. I'm really excited to get it
1: out in the world and just to have conversation around this very important topic.
0: So thank you for it, starting us off. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for giving me the honor of being able to do that. And it is such an important conversation and it's one that I know I'm having all of the time. So mm-hmm. I'm really really interested to get your perspective because you are an expert. And as an expert, I just want to give the audience a little bit about you, about your bio. So this is Kristen Henning. And Kristen Henning is the Bloom Professor of Law and the Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown Law, where she and her law students represent youth accused of delinquency in Washington, D.C., Chris was previously the lead attorney for the juvenile unit of the D.C. Public Defender Service and is currently the director of the Mid-Atlantic Juvenile Defender Center. She has been representing children accused of crime for more than 25 years. Chris trains state actors across the country on the impact of racial bias in the juvenile and criminal legal systems. Her workshops help stakeholders recognize their own biases and develop strategies to counter it. Chris also worked closely with the MacArthur Foundation's Juvenile Indigent Defense Action Network to develop a 41-volume Juvenile Training Immersion Program, a national training curriculum for juvenile defenders. She now co-hosts with the National Juvenile Defender Center, an annual week-long JTIP Summer Academy for Defenders. In 2019, Chris partnered with NJDC to launch a racial justice toolkit for youth advocates, and again in 2020, to launch the Ambassadors for Racial Justice program, a year-long program for juvenile defenders committed to challenging racial injustice in the juvenile legal system through litigation and systemic reform. And that is just a snippet of her bio. So I know she's going to share with us her website where you can read all of it. But now that I've shared your professional bio, I would love to hear what your personal motivation was for writing this book.
1: Yeah, you know, it is hard, Stephanie, to represent clients for 25 years and to not want to blow up the system, to be quite frank, Mm -hmm. Um, and not to ask the really hard questions like, why is it that this courthouse is, you know, 99% African-American youth? (laughs) And I'm only slightly exaggerating. I mean, I talk about in the book, I have been representing kids for 25 years. And in that entire time, I've only represented represented four white children. Four um, in 25 years. And that's just absolutely unheard of. It would lead you to believe either that there are no white kids in Washington, D.C., or that white kids don't commit crime. And we know that neither one of those are true. I mean, adolescents are adolescents, regardless of their race, class, ethnicity, and in fact, research shows adolescents develop along the same trajectory all over the world. So they're Mm -hmm. impulsive, they're sensation seekers, they test the limits, they do all the things that we did when we were kids, but yet you only see Black kids in D.C. Superior Court. And we even, you know, in D.C., we only have a handful of Latinx kids who come through the system now. In other cities, big urban cities, you'll see more Latinx kids, so it's Black and Latinx kids, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's disturbing. So you say what motivated me? I mean, it's that you can't live with that reality without really wanting to interrogate like what is going on. And I really wanted an opportunity to tell my clients' stories, to tell the stories of the young people who are literally criminalized every day for things that you and I did when we were kids and, you know, who are traumatized by their experiences, mm-hmm. um, both with police, within the system itself, and then also in the community by, you know, at the hands of civilians who also criminalize them. So,
0: cool. That is a lot. And I can't even imagine um, doing what you do for 25 years. It would weigh on you, but I'm so glad that you are in the position to do it because you're passionate about it. It sounds like it's part of your purpose and mission in this life. And we need people like you who really care about these youth, not just people who just wanna see them quickly go through the system. When I read the excerpts from your book, I was immediately immersed, like at the first line. So (laughs) it is riveting. It's a riveting read. And it's so well written that I can't wait to read the entire book. So I'm really curious, what was your process like for writing this amazing work? It was an evolving process, I have to
1: say. So, you know, you gave my sort of bio and you recognize that my bio includes an academic component, meaning that I am a professor of law and we as professors can get into our academic think, right, and our academic speak. As I started writing, I found myself falling into old habits, which is, you know, defaulting to that research, which is really, really important, but defaulting in in the research and using language that wasn't always accessible to everyone, right? And what I also realized is that what was more important to me than anything was my clients' voices, So really, ultimately, the process became over time was to pull back from this academic approach and to say, start with the stories. What are the stories that you want to tell from your experiences, your experiences representing children in the District of Columbia? And so I literally like, you know, several years ago, created a folder on my computer with all of the stories that I just thought No way. This is crazy. You know, we would never do this to a white child or a middle class child. We just wouldn't do that. So I started collecting those stories and those stories really became the foundation. And instead of letting the research drive the stories I let the stories drive the research. So then if I have this narrative about this black kid who was criminalized, for something that you know, a white kid would never be brought before the courts for, then what's driving that? What is that research? What research explains that? Mm-hmm. And so that was really a critical piece of the process. And then beyond that, sometimes there were just pieces of research that were just so important to share that I needed a story that would help amplify that. And so I okay. then also began to draw from these high profile stories that all of us know about and have heard of, or at least most of us. So stories about Tamir Rice and mm-hmm. Mike Brown and the young girl who was unnamed, but was 13 years old and who was pep- sprayed in New York. I mean, and the stories go on and on. And yeah. Shakira, who was you know, ripped from her chair by a school resource officer in South Carolina. So those stories then became natural and they came easily. And so what this book is ultimately is a, honestly, I really appreciate you're saying that the book is riveting. I think it's riveting because it ties together the voices of the children together with that research. And hopefully the research is offered to the audience in a way that is accessible and readily applicable to what we see every day, so.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. I am a research nerd, so I really appreciated the research, but it was the story that captured me. So I think you found the perfect balance between the two. Great. Now, I have teenage boys. I have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old. And I know a lot of other moms with teenage boys, and this is a constant conversation Mm -hmm. amongst us, is how do we prepare them to grow up Mm -hmm. and be Black men in America, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but not steal their innocence?
1: Excellent. What? I mean, just, yes. Exactly. Exactly. a
0: hard question, right? It is. It's a hard question. And so I am so excited to have this opportunity to ask that question of you because your book is really talking about the rage of innocence. So what are your thoughts on how to sort of strike that balance?
1: Yeah, I mean, literally spot on the right question. I say that because as I was doing my research, and I'll tell you, this gets directly answered in chapter five, this question. And the chapter is called The Politics of Identity Development. And it's all about the ways in which Black identity development is formed and challenged as a result of what you just described. It is as a black parent, how do I make my child aware of the realities of racism that they are going to encounter moments of racism or overt or subtle or whatever, right? And have them be prepared so that they're not shocked and hurt and harmed in ways that could have been avoided. While at the same time, we don't want to terrify our children. We don't want to create trauma. And then we also don't want to create a situation where our children are completely afraid of all police and who are resentful of white America and who walk around life believing that there are no white allies, because we know that's also not true. And so it is a really delicate line. And so some of the things that in the research, so I you know, begin to do some research around this question, and sort of what the experts begin to tell us is indeed, one, just being aware that it's a fine line, that you, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to overstate your cause, but that you want to marry sort of these warnings with indications of resilience. And so what do I mean by that? So drawing upon, you know, Black history, right? And uh, highlighting the Rosa Parks and the Thurgood Marshals of the world who encountered racism, but did something about it, right? And did something about it in safe and constructive ways. It is about, you know, working with your local school to make sure Black history is incorporated and told well and accurately within the school system and not as a labeling or a negative perception. That really positive reinforcement of young black and brown boys and girls is really, really critical. And especially, Stephanie, during their adolescent years, because the ways in which we come to think about ourselves, who we are, what we can become in life, and, you know, how we will be received in life really get fixed in our minds during our adolescent development years. So more than any other time, you know, certainly during childhood, right, but during those teenage years, making sure our children are buffered from those negative labels and negative stereotypes through positive reinforcement. Right. And then also, too, I think the final tip would be it's about giving tools. So, you know, working through scenarios with your child. Like, so if this were to happen, one, I want you to wo stop, think. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about let's, you know, mood out. What might you say without becoming angry or resentful? How is it that we might walk our way through these moments? So I think those are some of the tips that I share and that were
0: shared through the research with me. That's absolutely perfect. So I heard three main points. Mm -hmm. The first one is to give them examples of positive historical figures that encountered racism and overcame it in a constructive way. The second one is to build up their self-identity and Mm self-esteem in the teen years. And then the third one was to buffer, give them a buffer of resilience and to work through some scenarios so that they're prepared. Yeah. Okay that's
1: right. <laughs> Good summary.
0: <laughs> awesome. I appreciate that. We talked about how timely your work is um just because of everything that's going on in society and continues to go on in society. And I was invited to participate in a program where it's a professor who's developed a curriculum for mm. black boys sort of going into manhood and preparing them to go into manhood as Black boys. And so I was ecstatic to get that invitation. It's a small group and it's a pilot curriculum. Mm. And so we have these topics and this week's topic just happened to be justice. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we have to discuss the questions as a family. And so one of the questions was, do you live in a just society? Mm. And I was really surprised that both of my sons pretty much thought that they did. Um, Their answer was kind of yes. And that was shocking to me. So I'm trying to do those three things that you mentioned, but I might need to kind of balance it out a little bit. So what should we be teaching our children about justice and the justice system in America? So what I love about what
1: your son said is that I think from their lens, they have hope in some ways i do think it's a difficult balance right i don't want to destroy that because the fundamental values that you know we offer up that everybody has a voice. I you know, would be curious to know what their definition of just, right? I think about justice in a number of ways, but one of the ways in which I think about justice is an opportunity to be heard, to have my voice considered meaningfully before decisions are made, that I have equal access to opportunity and resources in this country, and that if there is a conflict, and this is where we get to sort of the traditional um, notions about legal justice is that when there's a conflict, that everyone will have sort of due process of the law and an opportunity to fairly state their case before ultimate decisions are made. And so, I mean, I guess the question becomes at this age in their lives, how are they measuring justice? And, you know, my guess is that a lot of this has to do with your parenting that you've given them an opportunity to have voice, that you've given them an opportunity to have access to what the best of what America has to offer. And, and so I think for them, and then they probably haven't dipped their toe into, I don't you don't want to make any judgments, into <laughs> this, right? this legal justice system. So where they sit now is a safe space, right? And this mm-hmm. is what we want. And this is about parenting and the community and the school in which your children go to. So I think what may be next, Stephanie, if I think this through, I think this is important. It's taking our kids to other communities and exposing them to how other kids might live. And I think that can be done in a number of ways. I will tell you the story. It's one of the most beautiful stories of my aunt, Anne Henning Byfield. Whenever, when we were little, we were growing up, she would come, you know, and visit us. And whenever she would visit us, she would say, okay, show me around your city. And we were like, okay. But then she would stop you and say, but I don't want to see like the you know historic landmarks. I don't want to see the big houses. I want to see where poor people live. Yeah. I want to see the projects. And she would just make us go there, right? Like, and we would just drive through and have a conversation about what's happening in those communities. So I think there's some of that that would be really, really valuable for your sons, not to say that you haven't done that, but to think about, you know, Mm -hmm. is there a way, how to, through your church or through your local recreation center, are there ways that our sons, who come from parents who went to Duke, right? Like, how do we make sure that they know what our origins are? And how do we make sure that they know how their brothers and sisters live, maybe, you know, two blocks away or the like? And can we make sure they're volunteering, make sure they're in proximity with, maybe even visiting the courthouse, I think is really important. I also think, is, and this is really hard, and this is the question of trauma and how much... Trauma, do we impose on Black and Brown children? But do you have the what does the conversation look like about George Floyd? What does the conversation Mm -hmm. look like about Tamir Rice? And so those are the ways in which I don't want to ruin for them this notion of justice, but explaining that it doesn't look the same for everyone, and it doesn't even look the same for every Black child as
0: well. I think that everything that you said was spot on, and I think that that's why it's so important to kind of address this and asking the questions, and having the conversation, and realizing, okay, well, I thought I was doing some of those things, but I would like to do more, because I want them to know exactly what you said, that justice does not look the same for Mm -hmm. every Black kid, and to have that empathy, and to have that historical background. So thank you for all of those suggestions. Now, in the book, you talked about a client and I'm, you know, Mm -hmm. named Eric Mm -hmm. who was a 13 year old adolescent who got into a lot of trouble for doing something that any other adolescent probably would have done. And actually, as you cited in the book, another white adolescent did the exact same thing and basically got opportunities from it. Whereas this black child got punished for experimenting. And so I have two questions. My first question is, is there an update on Eric? Like, what ultimately happened? How is he doing? Yeah. Um, and then the second question is, what are the main takeaways you want us as readers to leave with after reading this story about Eric? Okay,
1: you're going to hate this answer, but you know, I want to say you got to read the book. So I'm just going to tell you, if you hold out to chapter nine. So you're absolutely right, Stephanie. I opened the book with a story about Eric, right? And how he got arrested. And I come to the end, chapter 12, and I close that story. Um, And I bring you up to date contemporarily. So just because I don't want to have the spoiler (laughs) for all of (laughs) you, I'm going to punt on that question, but it's answered. It is definitely answered. But I think you're asking the right question, which is what are the takeaways that I want, you know, from Eric's story or what arise naturally from Eric's story? And I think, you know, first and foremost is adolescence looks like adolescence all over the world. Mm -hmm. And that we as a collective, have got to learn to treat Black children like Black children, like children. So treat Black children like children, like the children that they are. And I think that's what's critical. And so what does that mean? In reading the story about Eric, you'll notice that like, he never got the benefit of the doubt. I don't mind telling the opening story. The opening story is, you know, is uh, Eric was watching TV over the weekend. He's watching a movie in which somebody makes a Molotov cocktail. And he, like a 13-year-old, says, ooh, that looks cool. I want to make something that looks like that. He jumps up. He runs to the kitchen. He grabs a whole lot of liquids, bleach, pine slaw, and pours them into an open bottle. Mind you, none of these things by themselves or in combination are flammable, Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, He then takes a piece of toilet paper. And sticks it in the bottle and has it hang out over the bottle as if it were a wick. And then he closes the bottle. Well, we also know that a piece of toilet paper is going to burn out before it even gets to the uh, to the bottle. So there's no way this is flammable at all. Well, he accidentally, he puts it in his book bag and he accidentally takes it to school, meaning he just forgot it was in his book bag. He gets to the front door. He has to put his bag through the metal detector. And the school resource officer says, hey, what is this? Eric then says, oh, that's nothing. You can throw it away. Eric goes on to class minding on a, his own business mm-hmm. and just a short time later police come rushing in fire department comes in they arrest him they mm-hmm. take him out no one gave him the benefit of the doubt he kept saying I wasn't intending to blow up the school I forgot it was there it's not flammable all the things that you know a teenager says and nobody gave him the benefit of the mm-hmm. doubt and so that's part of what treating and engaging with adolescents looks like and that's one of the takeaways why don't we treat them the same as we treat others? Why are Black children presumed to be dangerous and criminal and to be feared? And so I think really what I wanted to do in this book is to shift the narrative, right? And so throughout the book, I try to tell the counter narrative, which is the stories, the underlying stories that these kids are just kids. And the other thing that I think I really want from this story is that even though that Offense, possession of a Molotov cocktail, attempted arson of a school sounded terrifying. It sounds like the violent crime of the century. All these kids are going to die. And reality was nothing like that. It's about narrative, it's about how we shape the stories that we tell about our children and especially about our Black children. I really wanted folks to walk around, walk away recognizing statistically that the vast majority, and I'm talking like 80 to 90%, I should actually flip the stat and say this, only 9% of arrests, involving children and include Black children involve serious violent offenses. The vast majority of offenses for which children get arrested and find themselves in court are those lower level offenses that we, there are alternative strategies for altering that behavior for you all had teenagers or weren't a teenager that experimented, that did something impulsive, something stupid, something that we regretted. We experimented Mm. with drugs. We experimented with sex. All these things when we were kids And we weren't arrested for them in the ways that we are now. And so I think that's really the takeaway from this.
0: Yeah, that definitely leads me into my next question. So in the bio, I talked about how you've developed curriculum and training and you go around and speak. Who is the audience for this book? Is it the same audience that you already speak to or is this intended for a broader audience? And what is the call to action? that you would heed us to after reading this book? So this is great. It's a both and, right? So it is
1: a continuation of the audience that I've been speaking to already, but that's a very narrow audience of justice-involved stakeholders, right? So Mm -hmm. judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, police officers, probation officers, social workers, folks like that. That's been the of who I have engaged with till now. And so part of that is about reforming the system. That assumes mm-hmm. that the system stays as it is in large measure, right? But yeah. that we're tinkering around the edges. We're making it better for Black and brown youth. But I wanted to do something bigger. This is the notion I said earlier about you can't do this work for so long without wanting to blow the whole thing up. Well, I can't blow it up. So. <laughs> but I can, right, try to make the nation as a whole, right? So to make the average reader, or at least the reader who cares about children, right, interested in this conversation, and I should say more than interested, aware of a conversation that I think they don't know. So I think we know intuitively, and we've seen it on television, that Black children and brown children are disproportionately affected by the criminal legal system. But to understand how pervasive it is Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day level, What it looks like on a day-to-day level is shocking for most people. A couple of public defender friends who've been doing the work like I have, maybe on the adult level, in adult criminal court, have read early uh, drafts of the book and were blown away. Like, I just had no idea how bad it was for kids in certain pockets of our country. And so I wanted to really bring that to life. And so this book is, you know, you never write a book for everybody because if you're trying to write for everybody, you write for no one. (laughs) Everybody, just people are not. Not going to be happy with this book. But my hope is that I get people who are at different places in their understanding and in their perspective on this question. So I hope, I know I'm going to anger some police officers, but at the same time, what people don't often know about me is that I actually work with police departments to think about how to improve youth police relations. So I'm not anti-police in that sense that like folks want to label, they want to box me into, I want to help, I want to improve. I want to think about how do we, yes, how do we radically reduce the footprint of police in Mm -hmm. the lives of children. And so you asked me about this sort of takes us into what's the call to action, right? Mm -hmm. I think the call to action for all of us is to rethink, uh, reimagine policing, right? And Mm -hmm. so what do we really need police for? And what do we not need police for? Who is better suited to take on some of the responsibilities and roles that we have currently assigned to police officers in relationship to children, right? So that means, you know, reducing the physical presence of police officers in the school system, right? Not to say Mm -hmm. that police officers will never be necessary if they're called in for a major criminal activity, but how can we rethink safety in schools? you know, Mm -hmm. by providing, right, additional mental health services, by having smaller classroom sizes, by having what they call violence interrupters in those schools where that is necessary, Mm -hmm. right? Credible messengers, people who have lived in uh, difficult, maybe even violent life circumstances themselves, who can come in and talk to young people. There's so many strategies, but more counselors, more social workers, more the range of mental health providers, restorative justice all of Mm -hmm. these evidence-based strategies for safety in schools. And then, you know, thinking about how do we support young people and particularly Black youth in the community Mm -hmm. without referring them to justice, quote unquote, justice system, or I would prefer to say legal systems in order to get services and support. So I think that's the call to action. And I think the final call to action for all of us, again, is my theme from beginning to end, treatment children like children, and that includes Black children, right? So be in proximity to young people in the community, whether by mentoring, volunteering, providing a job, um, so that you get to know young people for who, Black youth, for who they are, and so that demystifies this narrative of fear
0: that we've so long held onto
1: in our country. Mm -hmm.
0: One, I love the call to action, and when you say that, that brings to mind for me is when I asked about your audience and you said people who are interested in children, and I would say the audience should be white people who don't know enough (laughs) about black children. Yeah. Because obviously if you're interested in the criminal justice system, you're interested in restorative justice, you're interested Mm -hmm. in children, you're going to naturally want to read this book. Mm -hmm. But I think that there are some people Who need to read this book, even if they're not interested in children, because they need to understand their role in perpetuating these societal norms that don't allow Black children to be viewed as children.
1: I really love that comment and in so many ways, because you're pressing me as I talk about this book, you know, who else is the audience, right? So it is, you're absolutely right. It's for black parents who want to figure out how do I keep my kids safe and how do I raise them? But it's also for white parents or white teachers, white social workers, white citizens, right? Who really, whether they care about children in particular, have a unique interest in children, but who care about justice right, Mm -hmm. who care about our democratic principles, right, who care about fairness and equity and race relations in our country, that the, really, the race relations starts with our children and how we treat our children. So it's an entree into these much broader conversations that we need to be having in society. And if we can't get it right with the young people, right, then how are we going to get it right at all? I really think that's a, it's a really important point that you asked about.
0: And you talked about policing and police officers, and you talked about the police resource officers that we have in our schools. And it's such a controversial topic because I think earlier this week or last week, I got a text message that said that the high school was on mini lockdown or something. Mm. And my heart stopped. Sure. So as parents, as a society, there's this dilemma between wanting to keep our children safe and not wanting them to be overpoliced right so is there a role i know you said to decrease police officers presence but is there a role for the officers in the schools you did a lot of explanation of the historical perspective mm-hmm. in your book which i loved because i had no idea what's the importance of understanding that historical perspective in understanding whether there's a role for them in our schools today?
1: Yeah, so it's a a great question. And and it's really one, I think it is the question that people want to know. It's like, well, and that's Black parents and white parents, it's teachers, it's the community. And what I think we have done in society is that we've created this false binary that, you know, the only way to achieve safety in our communities is policing right? And that there aren't other ways to make our kids safe. And so I listed some of those earlier. That's one thing. It's just that we care about safety, but safety does not have to by definition mean policing. Okay. I wanted to start there. I also think that to the extent that we will engage police in the safety of our students, then we've got to be thoughtful about how. And so being thoughtful about how is, one starts with physical presence. So in other words, if they're going to be engaged in the safety continuum or the safety plan, can they not be right next door? Can't we not have satellite offices whereby our children don't have to be surveilled constantly as they come in and out and feel like they're in a police state? And this is especially true, you know, and some of you who are listening are thinking, well, my kid's school doesn't look like that. I want us to be mindful of what it's like to have kids go in traditional urban school settings and the like. That's one. When officers are present, how are they dressed? Are they in uniform? Do they have um, weapons at their side? Do they have, you know, military grade equipment, right? So I talk about that in the book too, military grade equipment that's been given by the federal government as leftovers into, you know, big schools like the LA School District, you know, Mm -hmm. some years ago and the students protested saying, no, we don't want this military grade equipment in our schools. So that's a question. Another question that I think has to be asked is discriminatory treatment. And so officers don't like that. Well, no, 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 we're not discriminating. Well, think about disparate outcomes. Why is it? What is happening? What is the root cause whereby school based suspensions, school based arrests, school based interventions are disproportionately targeted against Black and Brown kids? Why is that? What is it about our racial biases and our presumptions? And um, what is it that we as a community, honestly, are doing wrong that makes that the case? And so I think there's a lot there. I also think that people forget, right? We have a 911 system. We have a 911 system. And that if a school is in crisis or there is true evidence of serious crime, um, then we can call the police just a short distance away and the police will come. And the problem with having such a high presence of police in the school building, not even about the officers and what the officers do, it creates a system whereby teachers, school administrators, and the like default. Uh I can call my deputy to come in and handle the situation. Um, And I get, you know, how important it is for teachers to be able to focus on education and how teachers want to be able to focus on those students who are behaving well in class. But the reality is, let's have behavior intervention specialists assigned to the classroom not police officers, not law enforcement officers. I think that's some of what is important. You asked the question about that, the history. And I too, like you, until I wrote this book, I did not know really the history, the depths of the history of the evolution of school resource officers. I confess, I believed with all my heart that the increase in school resource officers in U.S. history was tied to the shootings of Columbine, mm-hmm. right, in Colorado, all these, yeah, you know, school, too. right? That's what we were taught. But when you do the research, you actually realize that school resource officers became a staple in U.S. society in the civil rights. Right. So when school resource officers were invited in, quote unquote, under the guise of protecting or facilitating integration. After Brown versus Board of Education, and we know that is not at all what was happening, that school resource officers and school police, whatever names they were given in that era, were very much sent to those schools to be an impediment to integration. So it is- Intimidate. Yeah, to intimidate. Exactly. We've seen photographs, we've seen images in the historical news about the ways in which those officers came and stood guard- in front of those schools but that's the origin right it's the post brown versus education origin of school police officers and then from almost the outset from almost the outset when school resource officers became more popular in flint michigan is sort of known as the origin of mm-hmm. the school resource officer even from the outset black parents Um, Black community leaders quickly recognized that Black children were going to be disproportionately targeted by policing. It's also worth noting that the NASRO, the National Association of School Resource Officers, actually formed. This is a national association. We had that many school resource officers actually formed before Columbine right? So it is true that after Columbine and after each of the major school shootings, the federal government has poured more money into school resource officers. But we are fooling ourselves if we believe that the um, the evolution of school resource officers is tied solely to those mass shootings. And the final thing I'll just say about this point, since you asked me about safety, so folks live with the False assumption that having a school resource officer or a set of school resource officers is going to prevent mass shootings. Right. Right. So they could tell that is not true. The, no. Just the research has shown that that in the Sandy Hook and all of these, there were school resource officers and they d- were not able to prevent or, you know, significantly curtail the mass shooting or the damage or the injuries that were caused as a result of the mass shooting. The other thing that's worth saying, I did say it was going to be the last thing, but the other thing <laughs> we're saying is the youth voices like after Parkland, after the Parkland shooting, the students came out and said, but we don't want to police our way out of is violence. We don't want to police our way. So our solution, we want to go to safe schools, but we don't want more police officers in order to do that, that we can think creatively and we can think outside the box about how to make that happen. And it's just no coincidence that even after Columbine, right, and the federal government pours money in, that Columbine and Sandy Hook, those mass shootings took place in wealthy white suburban neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Police officers, school resource officers, school police officers are far more likely to appear in predominantly black schools or schools that have a seventy-five percent population of black students or higher. It's really, a complicated racial history, and I think that matters when we think about what do we need to do now. We need to understand that school climate includes the racial climate. It includes the traumatic impacts of seeing police officers. At the front door every time one enters the front door, particularly if you are a black or brown child who has grown up in a heavily surveilled police community, right? Or heavily policed community. So it's an extension of, of what they fear, and to be quite frank, what they resent from their community once they enter that schoolhouse gate.
0: That was an amazing answer. Thank you. And it was very thorough. It really just makes me say everybody needs to read this book because I think it's just a natural, we've been conditioned to think that police means more safety. And if you don't think about it, the fact that that's just not true, it's just, it's not true that putting more police in the schools will make your children safer, then you just kind of like go along with that. So I think just reading this book can educate you and also disrupt that idea. But I'm so excited to read the whole thing and get to the end and find out what happened to Eric. And as we wrap up the interview, I just wanted to ask you, I know I've asked a lot of questions. What are the three things that you would like to really share about this book with my audience? Oh, really great
1: question. I think it's that one I really want to underscore that the book is full of narratives and stories from Black children. And so that when I talk about remedies in Chapter 12, my opening remedies, if you want to know what to do, if you want to know how to help Black children, ask them. And so I think that's probably my number one takeaway I think another one is that every one of us, whether we are involved in the legal system or not, whether we're a parent, whether we're a teacher, that every single one of us has some role to play Mm -hmm. in altering that narrative, right? Altering the narrative of fear about Black children. So it starts by educating yourselves. So I do hope you'll read the book. But educating yourselves, not just by reading my book, by, you know, getting out into the Black community of young people figuring out ways to volunteer and become, be, you know, in proximity to Black children. I think that's a, a second thing I really want folks to take away and be engaged in this work. So, as a citizen, you vote, you vote people in and out of office. Be aware what is the chief of police, what's their politics on youth police relations. You know, if you have an elected district attorney, what's their, what are their views on youth uh, police relations? So thinking about ways in which you can touch the system and make a difference, make your voice be heard after you educate yourself. I think those would would be three takeaways.
0: Thank you. When you talk about narrative, I love it because that's one of the things that I aim to do with this podcast is to allow people to hear narratives from different people Mm -hmm. that they may not normally hear them from. And I can't end a source show without asking you about limiting beliefs because I ask everybody about that. So in doing this work and writing this book, what were some of the limiting beliefs that you had to overcome? Because we may have somebody who's a budding author Mm -hmm. who may have some similar ones that they have to overcome.
1: Really great question. So, I mean, I think you have your all of us come in with our self-doubt. And I think in, in embarking upon something like this is just huge. I think one limiting belief was nobody would be interested in this topic. I was sorely wrong about that. People are very interested in this topic or people wouldn't be interested in this topic from an academic and I think that's right, but here's how you overcome the belief. It's like, well, if people aren't interested in an academic conversation about it, then how do I reach the audience that I'm interested in, right? So I can overcome that by altering my voice and writing a trade press book that's available and accessible to everyone. I also thought but definitely a limiting belief is there is no way I have time to write a book like this. <laughs> and so I got to tell you, Stephanie, you know, you talked about the research. There's so much research in there interwoven with the narratives. And I mean, it took, I mean, it, you know, at least four years to write this book. And I got to tell you, I was still and am still representing children in the local courthouse. I train and speak and just, you know, I have a life. And so figuring out, or as my family would say, you do not have a life, but <laughs> But thinking that it couldn't be done. I was actually associate dean for the vast majority of the writing of this book. And so really finding time at night and on the weekends and during vacation to write this. And so I think that was a limiting belief that it just can't be done. And it can't, right? Like it will be a deep sacrifice. And, you know, you will get pushback from friends and family who say you have just disappeared, literally. Um, But it was worth the sacrifice. And I hope that it's a vehicle for deeper conversations that I think we're beginning to have as a result of some of these high profile brutality that we're seeing, but it's more than that. I don't want the conversation to just to be about the brutality, just to be about use of force. I want it to be about the day-to-day lives. And so overcoming the doubt, self-doubt gets us to that place. so
0: Absolutely. So please share your marketing strategy, your book tours, how we can buy the book, how we can yeah. follow you, all that good stuff. So let me start by saying you can buy the book anywhere books are sold. I know that
1: sounds crazy, but I I have learned, right? There are those of us who, you know, support the big box companies. You know who they are. It -hmm. is in all the big box stores. It is in all the dot coms. Um, You can buy this book, but it's also at independent booksellers. It's in your neighborhood bookstore. And if you don't see it in your neighborhood bookstore, you know, ask them to buy it. It, um, The book is officially released tomorrow. I do know some people copy has already arrived over the weekend. So it is everywhere books can be purchased. It it is published by Penguin Random House. Um, And so it's very much alive and everywhere you want to buy it. In terms of marketing and getting to know more about me and more about the book and the the stories and the book talk and the book tour, I urge you to go to rageofinnocence.com. Extraordinary shout out to my brother, (laughs) Kyle, who developed my website. He's actually a professional, but he developed this um, website for me. And it has a link to all of the book events that are coming up. We've got an event tomorrow night as opening night. We're going to open with a virtual event at Harvard Bookstore and at Politics and Prose on Thursday night and a lot in between. And so if you don't see this before Tuesday or Thursday, a lot of those will be online and, and you will be able to watch them after the fact. But there are events lined up for the next several months. So I hope to see you and be in conversation with
0: all of you at one of those talks. I am looking forward to it and to being able to see you in person. And thank you so much for sharing. And that was rageofinnocence.com. That's where we can get all of the information and the dates and the schedule. And can't wait to get my copy. And just so happy and so proud of everything that you're doing. Thank you so much, Chris.
1: And thank you, Stephanie. Also right back at you. Super proud of you for having these conversations and getting folks to think and, and be aware. So thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for conquering those limiting beliefs on another episode of the SOAR podcast. If you want to reach out to my guest, just check out the show notes and all of the contact information is there. If you want more information about Stephanie Brown Coaching, go to www.stephaniebrowncoaching.com. And I'm sure you're already following the SOAR podcast Instagram page. But if not, just go to IG and type in Sisters Overcoming and Rising, all one word. Goodbye for now.